This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, Jason, all eyes on how fast the Saudi Arabia um, region, and specifically Saudi Arabia, can recover from the weekend's devastating strike, which knocked out roughly 5% of global uh, oil supply and triggered a record surge in oil prices. We've been talking about it all day long here at Bloomberg. This story, a political and a market one. Let's talk about it with Peter Cheer, head of macro strategy at Academy Securities, on the phone from Connecticut. Also with us, Mark Heinrich. He's U.S. Navy retired Rear Admiral and Advisory Board member at Academy Securities as well. Um, great to be talking with both both of you. Peter, let me start with you from a market perspective. How do you read this? You know, I think the markets um, overreact a little bit. I think the price of oil makes a lot of sense. I like the transition into energy stocks. I don't think this is going to be particularly bad for markets as a whole. And I think actually treasuries are going to go back to like they were last week selling off and we're going to see higher yields because this probably will be a little bit inflationary and it's not going to derail the economy because we here are now, you know, a large actual exporter of natural gas and oil. So we just don't have that same risk that we did in the past decades. As the Admiral can go into, we think we're going to see a very measured response on our part, which is also calming to us. Admiral Heinrich, come on in on the conversation, because I am curious about what kind of conversations you think might be happening right now uh, on a political level within the White House, uh, within global leaders or among global leaders. How do you see it? I think that uh, our national security apparatus, which includes Treasury, State, Defense, and, of course, the National Security Council, I think our national security apparatus is hard at work right now. You know, the folks who do plans for a living have plans on the shelf for a variety of responses to a variety of situations. They've probably pulled two or three off the shelf right now, and I would suspect that both state and Treasury are hard at work socializing them with uh, some of our most important allies and coalitions. This is, uh, this is going to be a team sport. Is I'm almost certain of that. So you'll see infrastructure strikes if they're going to take place that are going to be well-coordinated from uh, our allies with intelligence provided from a variety of sources. Look, you know, Kuwait got overflown um, is, is our, our uh, I think, our initial assessment. So they're sort of sore about this whole thing. The uh, Saudis, obviously, they have to, they have to portray, participate and, and be a leader in this. And frankly, Israeli could be, Israel could be involved as well. Right. You know, I think uh, Pompeo is going to do the diplomatic push and try to be the peacemaker right now. Well, Admiral, I, I want to push you on that just a little bit because this is coming at a time where, you know, we're just post John Bolton's departure. We are on the eve of the United Nations General Assembly here in New York, as you well know. We've got elections coming up in Israel. How much of that backdrop may muddle the response or make it that much more complicated for the U.S. administration? Well, I think it's you're, you're absolutely right. The, the, the complications of the international forums that we're talking about, the the U.N. General Assembly and elections, offer offer a complexity that I think can be overcome. I want to throw one other comment uh, into this. I think that uh, the discussions about the impact of this loss in production is is I think going to be tempered by some of the variety of increases that we've seen in overall experts. You know, U.S. production in 2010 
was only about 2 million barrels a day. And you wrote just four days ago that we've actually supplanted Saudi Arabia as the right. top exporter. So it's uh, I think there's a lot of dynamics. I've read recently that Venezuela is having a hard time getting getting uh, tankers to export their products. And I also see that the uh, folks who have been buying fuel from Iran are now coming to us for fuel because they don't want to uh, be in conflict with U.S. sanctions. Yeah, I do wonder when things like this happen, how it starts to maybe longer term change the energy markets uh, for the future. So, Peter, how do you see that? I mean, can we because of this? And because we, you know, go over the last 20 years, we've seen those moments of instability in the Middle East. Uh, do we need to see or might we see a longer-term strategic change when it comes to the energy markets in particular because the U.S. is now a really serious player? Yeah, I think this actually hopefully um, causes, you know, the government to continue to support easing some of the regulations and restrictions to make sure that we can not only become, you know, remain energy independent, but grow kind of our domestic energy sources. I think that is actually very powerful. One of the charts that we work on a lot is we look at the world in terms of energy production and kind of geopolitical instability. And the one part of the world that shows up as very stable with a lot of energy is North America. And that's always been a big part of why we think China's going to want to buy liquid natural gas. People should be diversifying their source of supply away from kind of these regions with a lot of instability. The U.S. spends a lot to ensure the stability and uh, safe shipments across the world. So I think this will actually be a further boost to the domestic energy business. And we get a lot of bang for the buck in the economy there as people have to build out. So I think it's actually going to turn out to be positive, and that's the surprise that the market hasn't figured out yet. And so, Admiral, just 30 seconds left here. What is the one next step that the administration has to most highly consider taking? Thanks. I think they absolutely have to double down on the sanctions. You know, we're seeing now significant domestic distress inside of Iran. You know, they had a young woman who self-emoliated herself for violating dress codes. We got a leading actress now charged with blasphemy for sympathizing with the victim. I think that there's. Uh, it seems as though Iran is really starting to have a significant right. problem. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you both so much. Mark Heinrich is U.S. Navy retired rear admiral, rear admiral and also advisory board member at Academy Securities. And from Academy Securities, Peter Cheer, the head of macro strategy. Well, he has said this before on our broadcast, a trade deal between the U.S. and China. It's highly unlikely. And instead, maybe we should all be focusing on the two further decoupling. Andy Brown is back with us, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. He joins us on the phone from London. Andy, good to have you here. You know, you really have been out there uh, front and center, you know, when we look at the tensions between the United States and China saying you didn't think we were likely to get a deal done. I want to ask you, before we go into what you wrote about, if we were potentially under a different president, do you think we would be in this situation right now with the tensions, heightened tensions between the U.S. and China? Yes, I do. And the reason I do is that I think that China has become a bipartisan issue, Um, that both parties are ready to take on China and its perceived trade abuses. Now, I don't think that the Democrats would have adopted exactly the same tactics uh, as Donald Trump, but I think that we would still be in the same place that we are in now. In terms of, you know, just the, the, the fact that U.S.-China relations are now really at the lowest point that they've been for decades. 
Well, and Andy, as you look across the implications, you know, you rightly and smartly cite Sean Donnan's reporting from last week about how this is playing through the U.S. economy, at least, where it does seem to be taking hold. Meanwhile, in China, what's been the the net effect of, of all this? Because it feels like, and, and this is one of the things you write about, this has not necessarily gone the way economically that President Trump intended. Well, it hasn't. I mean, it, look, both, both sides are under huge political pressure now. China's got this deadline, which is October the 1st, which is the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. There is going to be an enormous jamboree in uh, Beijing, including a full-scale military parade, tanks, missiles, uh, guns, goose-stepping troops, you name it, through Tiananmen Square. Um, a, a celebration of Xi Jinping's China dream, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people. And it simply won't do in the middle of all this to have Donald Trump there slapping new tariffs on Chinese exports, looking, making it look for all the world as though China is yet again being bullied by you know, Western imperial powers. So China wants to get this thing at least quietened down a bit before you know, October the 1st. They understand very well there is not going to be a big trade agreement. It's just not going to happen. And I think on the U.S. side, reality is also starting to, to, to sink in. So they've come up with what looks to me like a pretty pragmatic solution, which is something like a mini deal or, you know, a, a limited detente. Uh, you could call it a, a truce. In order, in order to get China through this, uh, this anniversary and, and at the same time to sort of get Trump off the hook politically uh, ahead of the 2020 elections. So, you know, it's, it's starting to look possible that we could see some movement on the trade, not the, not the big sort of be-all, end-all trade deal that people have been talking about, but something much more modest. So then what is the relationship between the United States and China potentially, Andy, going forward? If there is this great decoupling happening, and we've talked a lot about kind of the world being split in two with China and its allies, and then the United States and its allies, uh, kind of uh, to some extent two major trading blocks and, and uh, the world divided in two, is that is that essentially what we should all be planning for. Totally. And, and I think, look, we all got used to this narrative now, this idea that on the high-tech side there's going to be a decoupling. So we know that the U.S. is going to be imposing these restrictions on exports of dual-use technologies to China. We know that Chinese investment in, 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 in Silicon Valley startups has, has absolutely collapsed. We know that. But then behind that, you have this raft of legislation which is coming down the pipeline in Senate and in the House which, for instance, would decouple the U.S. and China uh, in capital markets, force, for instance, Chinese companies to delist from U.S. exchanges, force U.S. funds not to invest in Chinese companies that operate in sectors where foreign investment is either forbidden or restricted. Just the other day, uh, you know, we're reading about uh, potentially the U.S. blocking the sale of Chinese subway cars to the United States on the grounds that they could be used uh, for spying, you know. So, so it, 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 it's really occurring in, in multiple areas, this decoupling. And, and in the end, it is going to fundamentally transform the way the global economy operates.
And let's talk about that transformation. We only got a couple minutes left, and this is a conversation that you will probably spend the next year thinking about, certainly in the run-up to your big conference uh, coming up in a couple months. But what are the tangible implications of that decoupling for big companies especially, Andy? Well, it, you know, it, it, the, picture, the picture right now is somewhat mixed. So, you know, um, uh, there are American companies that are, are planning at the margins to reallocate some of their manufacturing from China to places like Vietnam and Bangladesh. Uh, that's already happening. And we know from surveys that a lot of uh, U.S. investment that was earmarked for China is now being diverted elsewhere. Uh, on the other hand, uh, countering that trend, you have companies like ExxonMobil and Tesla, which are planning or already engaged in multi-billion-dollar U.S. investments in China. But the, the real thing is this, that when you get this decoupling, you're going to have you know, massive inefficiencies, massive waste. From among multinational companies, you look at it. You look at a company like like uh, General Motors, which is already planning on having R and D in the U S. for products that are for the U S. market in China for the China market. So you're already seeing that playing out now in terms of waste inefficiency. The other thing that, that we you really got to understand is the Chinese are hunkering down for a long trade war. I thought it was very revealing over the weekend where you had Xi Jinping. And he goes off to Xiangshan, the west, the fragrant hills in Beijing, which is where the Chinese Communist Party uh, were headquartered during the, the last stages of the civil war against the nationalists. And he starts talking about struggle and self-reliance and standing on our own two feet and standing up to the enemy. And at one point, he gets actually apocalyptic. And he's saying, you know, the Chinese people, we can destroy the whole world, you know, and create a new one. Wow. You know, to, to China is, get ready, guys, tighten your belt. This is a whole new world that's coming. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, it really is, you know, hurtling towards something of a conclusion or certainly a redefinition of how we think about the global economy. Andy Brown, always great to get your insights. Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy, joining us on the phone from London. Send lawyers, guns, and money. I think we've already talked to Max Chafkin about guns and money at some point. Money, certainly, probably a gun here and there. You know what kind of guy he is. But uh, I'm just kidding. Max Chafkin is features editor for Bloomberg Business Week. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And we're going to talk about lawyers because I have to say, Carol and I both love this story in part because we all have such wide-ranging experiences with the sharing economy, the gig economy, uh, the new economy, as it were. And here we have probably in some ways an overdue uh, manifestation in the legal world. Tell us what's going on with uh, the Twitch co-founder's new startup. Yeah, so so uh, there's a story in the, the forthcoming magazine about Atrium, which is a sort of Silicon Valley, as you said, sharing economy spin on, on a law firm. Uh, as we reported today, they just announced a new uh, pricing scheme that was sort of the peg for the article for $500 a month. You know, flat fee, you get a lawyer um, rather than the sort of traditional, you know, 
having a partner bill you at a, at a, at a very high rate. Now, it should be said that, that that only includes like an hour of actual normal lawyering, but they throw in a bunch of, you know, sort of software services, uh, 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 basically some online tools so that you can kind of DIY some of the pieces of, of normal corporate law. Remind everybody who this guy is. Yeah, this is Justin Kahn, who I've known as a journalist for a long time because uh, Justin Kahn was the founder of this thing, Justin TV, in the mid-2000s. He was like one of the first online reality stars. He went around with a, a uh, camera on his head and, and, and the part of the one of the jokes of the show is that nothing ever happened. He was mostly coding or, or just hanging out. There was you know hours and hours of him sleeping. Um, but in other words, this is not the guy you would normally think of as like the guy you want to be your corporate lawyer. Um, but from the point of view of, uh, of Atrium... Or he's not a lawyer. He is not a lawyer. Okay. He is never, unlike you know normal CEOs of law firms, he's never worked in a law firm. Uh, the, the sort of counter-argument is, and, and you hear this from Andreessen Horowitz, which just led this enormous round in Atrium, I think it was 65... Uh, million dollars or so, that's an advantage. You actually kind of want somebody from the world, uh, the sort of kookier uh, world of the consumer internet to, to, to disrupt all the problems with uh, traditional corporate law. And so how did he get this idea? Uh, he, he told me basically he was talking to friends who are, you know, raising money. I mean, when you're in that, when you're in that milieu, Justin Kahn had been an investor, you know, especially right now in 2019, there are just, you know, deals happening all the time. And he started asking, you know, why, why are these deals taking so long and why are they so expensive? Why does, why does a, a funding round that's basically a standard piece of paper cost tens of thousands of dollars? And then, he, as he told me, he started digging in, you know, learning that uh, law firms aren't typically using all these new software services that, that many people uh, kind of in the knowledge economy know and love, like Slack or Trello, or I guess some of us hate, hate them as well. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, it, it decided, you know, to do something about that. So the idea is to bring some software chops to a, a normal law firm but I, I mean no offense I mean kind of cool but I'm not, I, I want to make sure that if I'm hiring a lawyer they really understand the law in this environment yeah yeah definitely and I think I, I think there's you know they're mostly going after startups mostly going after basically simple uh, transactions transactions they're not doing complicated mergers and acquisitions this is the kind of thing if you're hiring someone you need to draw up kind of a, a pro forma offer letter or something, you don't have to call your lawyer and be billed at $1,000 an hour to, mm-hmm. to do something pretty easy, like an offer letter or an NDA. Um, they, they, they are saying that they want to go after you know, traditional corporate law, so eventually go after you know, corporate finance and, and, and the, the sort of bread and butter for the, for the big law firms. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think there's some reason to think that could work. Yeah. I mean, as software, you know, becomes more capable, it does seem like this is, the, this is an area where, you know, there's going to be some disruption. Well, it feels a little bit like the disintermediation we've seen in, say, real estate, especially residential real estate, where you just think, okay, like, how, what percentage of the asking price or the selling price am I paying, you know, this person to do a bunch of stuff that I can go on the internet and do with? not that much trouble it feels like there there are areas of the of the legal sphere that are similar absolutely and and atrium is is hiring normal lawyers so so from the point of view of the client you do have somebody who What's comes a normal lawyer you know somebody who comes from a big law f- uh, okay. background who's getting paid no such thing as a normal yeah, lawyer some, somebody who was recruited from one of these corporate okay. law firms because i was curious about the due diligence right because you're gonna you know the what he does and his firm will only be as good as the lawyers that or under his umbrella. I think the the analogy here is telemedicine. You know, where you have where you have yeah. the idea that well um, you can use 
uh, technology to sort of make these high-end service professionals much more uh, productive. Now, the, the one thing I will say is I think this is in some sense a, a symptom of the current economic climate, both in terms of mm-hmm. um, Silicon Valley. There's tons of funding. And, and, you know, this is the kind of thing where it's a startup serving other startups. Plus, law firms tend to be, you know, really uh, affected by recessions because yeah. it's, it's like one of the first things to go. So this is a business that is, is going to do really well in uh, a good economy. And I think you know, it's going to be a struggle. Now, they argue because their prices are lower, they're going to be able to weather any kind of recession. All right. Uh, it's a great story. Check it out in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. It's online and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Max Chafkin wrote it. He's features, features editor for Bloomberg Business Week here with us in New York City. We've missed him. He hasn't been around as much, but know, we're going to drag him back into the had studio. done something to like, yeah, That's usually the case. Yeah. I know. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Now, banks are increasingly doing the bookkeeping on carbon to better assess risk. Emily Chase is a sustainability editor here at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. This story and more part of Bloomberg News' participation in covering climate now. It's an initiative led by the Columbia Journalism School, and it's something certainly near and dear to us here at Bloomberg. Let's talk about what banks are up to. Uh, Emily, what are they doing? Yeah, well, it's interesting because banks are trying to rethink their role in the climate crisis. You know, if you look at a financial institution and you say, what's your carbon emissions? It's actually kind of low. But if you think about what are the emissions they enabled by investing in other companies um, or providing loans that make business happen, then it's actually a lot. So all these banks are out there making commitments to do green finance and green lending. um, And they also have this huge legacy of fossil fuel lending that they're trying to grapple with. who stands out? You know, as you look across the universe of, of big banks, you write about a few who seemingly are being a little bit more active than others. Who are we talking about? Well, this story that we wrote was about ING. Mm-hmm. Um, my colleague, Sajel Kishin, wrote it for Bloomberg Business Week, but it's about ING. And ING um, is in the Netherlands, which is actually below sea level. So they really feel like they have a stake in the climate change right. <laughs> issue. And um, so they've actually committed to aligning their lending portfolio to two degrees, which is very rare. And they've sort of led this group of banks that have said they would do that. And they're sort of at the forefront of this battle trying to figure out what their emissions are in their portfolios. So it's not only about what the bank is doing, but it's also if they're lending to companies and what that risk is, right, in terms of those particular companies, what their carbon footprint is and what their risks are and their exposure to climate change, correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, we're all exposed to climate change in some way Mm -hmm. that we have to get to decarbonization and net zero emissions by 2050 to avoid the worst effects of climate change. So um, there's a lot of push to do that. And the energy industry and utilities are sort of front and center. Uh, And we should point out before we move on briefly to the next story that Mike Bloomberg, who's the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, owner of this magazine, this radio station, is chairman of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, uh, which clearly has a voice in all this. Talk to us briefly about phone companies, 5G. We're all so excited about it, but it's going to be a power hog, right? Yeah, it seems like 5G towers and having faster cell phones is actually going to sort of triple the environmental impact of cell phones. Wow. Um, and I guess, you know, it's not the hugest amount, but, you know, you look at all the places you can decarbonize and you can eliminate carbon from your your life. That's one of the spots you can do it. Probably mobile phones are about 06 
percent of greenhouse gas emissions globally, but you don't want to triple that because we can't we can't go in that direction. 5G could unleash a thousand-fold jump in data demand for connecting factories and cars and supercharging mobile devices uh, by one estimate. I mean, this is going to, as we've said, we've talked about the benefits, right, of 5G and the interconnectivity, but you do have to start thinking about the power demands, right? It kind of, that timetable that we're talking about in terms of reducing our footprint this is going to change that dramatically. Well, there's a real opportunity right there for these companies to say, hey, let's put um, co-generation right at our tower site so you can put um, windmills or solar panels there and you don't have to have this impact. Great stuff. Emily Chasen, sustainability editor for Bloomberg. She and her colleagues will be back with us throughout the week. This article, these articles we've talked about, part of Covering Climate Now, it's a global collaboration of more than 250 news outlets to highlight the climate change story. All right, this is one of these moments where Carol goes, oh boy, here we go, because we're talking Atlanta. Uh, Brad Ball's here with us. He's the CEO of Liquid Strategies, based down in the ATL, but here with us I do like in Atlanta, New York though. City. Today, we're going to be there I know, uh, in a month, soon. doing looking a couple shows, and looking forward to that. And happy to have Brad here with us in New York City, especially on a day where we see a lot of volatility in U.S. equity markets. But Brad, I have to say, not necessarily the volatility or the source of volatility that we necessarily expected. I'm not sure we went into the weekend thinking, oh, we're going to have a major move in crude. How do you factor all of that into the markets these days? Yeah, you're, it's, a gr- it's a great question. So, you know, w- what we're constantly trying to evaluate is the market properly accounting for the risks that exist. And I have to say, going into last week, we felt that going into the FOMC meeting, if you actually looked at a week ago, the FOMC probability, as calculated per the CME, how they price it, was a 91% probability uh, of, a, of a rate cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's slowly been edging down, and as of just a little bit ago, it's at 65%. So now, suddenly, oh, it's only sort of one to two. And, and so you kind of say, all right, so this thing that everyone's considered to be academic isn't all that academic at this point. Now, that's not to say we're projecting they're not going to cut. But the point is, one in three odds, is, you know, that they don't, I think would really throw a pretty good ripple through this market. Further, the China talks, all, all we know, this thing goes through this cycle where they're, it's all good and everything's great. Suddenly, something changes quickly. So we went into this week not knowing, of course, there was going to be these oil attacks or these uh, uh, the, the, the labor stuff. But, but, you know, we just didn't like how the market was pricing risk. So I agree with you. You know, we're looking at VIX in the 14 and 15 range with some fairly significant issues in front of us. Well, yeah, 14, 15, I mean, that seems sort of low for the sort of volatility that we're experiencing, right? But it's been low for a long time, yeah. despite the extreme volatility that we've seen, even when we've seen the spikes come uh, August or December, right? We've still seen volatility historically stay pretty low. Yeah, so our, our general uh, belief is that volatility runs in these sort of secular trends. And, and you know, we, we have these macro cycles that it runs. And we feel like Q4 was the beginning of a turn in that cycle. So even though we are still in low vol, and we have been seeing low vol this year, it's still been a notch higher than what it was last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you think about it long term, 15, 20, 30 years of VIX, you're looking at 18, 19 is the long-term average. So even though we're looking at 15 now, we're thinking, wow, VIX is up. It's still really well below the historical average. Now, the 19, it's the whole figures. You know, you have 30s that pull it up. But, you know, I would say that sort of more routine VIX is 15, 16 VIX. All right. So what do you do as an investor in this sort of market then? It- Are you trading on the VIX? 
So we don't trade on the VIX, but we use VIX. So what we do, we do overlay management. So what we're really doing is our belief system is that uh, the most investors out there have think two dimensionally. They have their money in stocks, bonds, maybe some alternatives. And if they want to put money into one or the other, they have to sell it out of the other thing. And our belief is that's not really a, a very modern way to look at it. Your portfolio is worth another layer to it that's, that can be used through an overlay. So you have collateral to your portfolio. You can add an option writing strategy on top of it. And we use a very, very low volatile option writing strategy mm. that you can put on top of a an all-stock portfolio, an all-bond portfolio, a balanced portfolio, and that can give you this incremental return. We can generate about an extra 3 to 5% on an annualized basis with hardly any change to volatility. So our story is one of making your portfolio be more capital efficient. So yes, we sell volatility, but what we're doing is selling volatility on things like the S&P 500, the downside protection of the S&P 500. Because right. one of the things I think people are wrestling with right now is this sort of passive world that we're living in that sort of, for lack of a better term, to use a very technical term, sort of boxes you in, right? I mean, you just don't have the flexibility that maybe you would want, but you probably don't right. want the sort of the, the agita of like a really actively managed portfolio in a market like this. Yeah. So if you look at 2008 or nine coming off the bottom, it made perfect sense. The market got cut in half. I just want to broadly participate with just as low as fees as yeah. possible. Just let me participate. Well, makes sense, right? But now, if you look at if you look at, and I could l- show you twenty different projections of what returns are going to be, and I can tell you that consensus for returns for equities are three to five, yeah. and for bonds for the next ten years. I mean, that's the next ten years. Now, likely that because there's a dip in the middle, but you know, following a recession. But the point is, returns are lower. So now, suddenly, you're in this position. Well, I don't know if just broadly participating in the market is such a great outcome. But the problem is, active management has just not consistently worked. So if you look at the statistics, the trailing 15 years, and this is not my data, this is Standard & Poor's, uh, over the last 15 years, one in 13 large cap managers has beat the benchmark. One in 13. Small cap oh. managers, one in 42. So the fact of the matter is, is active management the solution? The, the, the data would suggest not really. So, But so, isn't that kind of what you guys are doing by doing this extra layer in the portfolios to kind of leverage assets? That's pretty active, isn't it? You're going to come out on the road with me. I love it when you're a good straight woman like that. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. We are, we are uh, definitely using active, but it's a different kind of active. So instead of using the risk premium that we're attacking, that being in stock selection, I think Google's going to go up more than yeah. Netflix. That is just not proven to work. Why? We have markets that favor growth or value, but invariably those strategies all cycle through. So they have a time when they're in the sun and then a time when they're not. We attack a different risk premium, and that is the risk premium that exists in options. Investors routinely overpay for option protection. It's like any other kind of insurance. We all buy car insurance and health insurance and things that we oftentimes don't need, but you still pay those premiums. And that's the same thing that happens in options. So what we do is instead of fearing that premium, we exploit that premium and we turn that into a separate return source. And that return source is low uh, correlation to those other things. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Good stuff. Brad Ball, thank you so much. Chief Executive Officer at Liquid Strategies based in Atlanta, Georgia, interviewing here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Everything's 
sold on the Anytown USA website is made in the USA and complies with FTC requirements uh, just for that. Here to talk about the business, especially in an environment where we feel like immigration is so often talked about, and I am curious about what impact it has on her business. Back with us is Geraldine Bragg. She's founder and CEO of Anytown USA, based in Westport, Connecticut, back in our Bloomberg uh, Interactive Broker Studio. Um, Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here again. Remind everybody what your business is all about. Yeah, so basically we've created a virtual Main Street, and that's the idea is um, we really think, you know, the marketplace is huge. Uh, It's inevitable that the next great platform will be created, and I think the next great platform is bound to be created by a woman like me. Um, And that's because, you know, women buy most of the things on marketplaces and about 80% of women sell what's on marketplaces and you know what they want is a fair way to be treated when they're selling and they want to know what they're buying and who they're buying it from so we sell things from real people in the United States who validate you know that it's made here and it does feel like, and, and we've been talking a lot mm-hmm. about this, there's a new book out called Fashionopolis, mm-hmm. uh, I knew this was in your head, uh, as well, that really talks a lot about what, sort of who and how people make the things that we buy. We're all so acquisitive, I say that about myself, Me uh, just as easily as anyone else, but why do you think we're having that moment where people really are caring as much. What's the catalyst here? Yeah, there's two things. Um, One is, uh, you know, there's people who actually, uh, about 60% of our users are, uh, care about economy and jobs and keeping uh, work and uh, the things in the community. Mm -hmm. And then we have a whole second group, about 40% who are millennials and such, who really care about sustainability, low carbon footprint. And really, um, here's a new twist. They don't want to dress like everybody else, for example, or have whatever everyone else has. That's where you see things like thread up and stuff like that, where they just want something a little bit different. So our site is about dressing yourself from head to toe, front door to back door, even your pets and babies in things that are made in America. So it's everyday stuff, not quirky stuff, but it's just a little bit different than what you can get everywhere else. Geraldine, what are the FTC rules on all of this in terms of being able to say made in America? Yeah, sure. There's a whole you know book on it. I'm not a lawyer, but sh- just to cut There's to the chase. There's a lot, right? Yes. To cut to the chase, the last substantial transformation has to happen in the U.S. So, for example, um, and you can have imported materials, but like, let's say you buy a roll of cork from Portugal, and then you make it into a handbag. Then you have to label that you're made in U.S. with imported material, and that's okay. What you can't do is buy a handbag from Portugal made out of cork, and then like stick an, uh, you know, silkscreen it. Because that is not last substantial transformation. And you have to label clearly. So we have three icons that are on our site, Made in USA, sorry, Made in USA, which is all or virtually all USA material, Made in US with US and imported material, and Made in US with imported material. So it's very clear to the consumer what they're buying. They can decide, you know, how much, how important content is to them, etc. And we also tell the stories of the sellers. We have a little map that shows where they're from. Right. Um, so you can find out as much as you want and get into it as much as you want. And, and, and who's the face behind it? Right. Uh, trade war may be good for your business <laughs> in, the, in the sense that it's changing the supply chain and maybe making people think even further about 
where their stuff is coming from? Well, it might be. We add an extra thing above the FTC that says we want everyone to have at least 50% of their cost of goods sold uh, U.S. content mm-hmm. or U.S. cost of goods sold. And so, um, uh, you know, we skew heavily towards the, the first two and not the made in U.S. with imported material, right? So our site will be more made in U.S. content. Um, and... You know, people are more and more conscious of what we call circle economics, I think, which is for everybody that you buy from in the U.S., you know, you're not just supporting that seller, but, you know, their, oh, accountant, their photographer, the people who they're sourcing from in their community. And I think people are just more aware of all of this because mm-hmm. it's in the news. You see a direct impact. Just got about 30 seconds in terms of like the pushback against immigration. Have you seen sales go up as a result? I wouldn't link it to immigration. What I would link it to is uh, people just being more aware of community. Mm-hmm. And people, um, and I would link it to the big marketplaces just being so huge. The average supermarket has 42,000 items. Etsy, for example, has 60 million items. Where are they all coming from? Wow. And, you know, they can't police something that big. Love talking with you. So glad you were able to come back. Caroline Brig, uh, she, Brig, excuse me. She's founder and CEO of Anytown USA. They're based in Westport, Connecticut, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker <laughs> Studio. And you can check out their website at Anytown USA. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.